just by chance my father had died the year before and so that was part of the reason that i took a year off because it was kind of like uh you know my dad had died I, I don't know basically mom was pretty understanding of me doing the thing that i love to do for a little bit and then you know as climbing became my profession then she's like oh yeah cool you know you're a professional climber like wh- whatever that means <laughs> you know but but by the time i started appearing on the cover of magazines and things she's like oh yeah sweet you know i guess keep doing that G'day, I'm Richard Harris, and thanks for joining me on Real Risk, the adventure podcast. Hi, welcome back, and thanks once again for joining me. It's still Mountain Month, and the podcast is being brought to you by Bremont, superb handcrafted timepieces made in the UK. And as the saying goes, they're tested beyond endurance. Well, what a treat it was to talk to Jimmy Chin a couple of weeks ago. The award-winning film Free Solo, directed by Jimmy and his wife Chai, is still being talked about. For my money, it's still the best adventure film since Kevin MacDonald's Touching the Void. The Dawn Wall is another must-see doco which follows Tommy Caldwell as he scales El Capitan via a new route. And the cinematography in all these mountain movies is compelling to say the least. Now Jimmy, Tommy and Alex Honnold, the star of Free Solo, are all mates, so I was pretty quick to angle for an intro to Alex when Jimmy generously appeared on Real Risk. And guess what? Jimmy has delivered. So you might recall in the first episode of Real Risk that I pondered the ability of Alex Honnold to climb the vertical face of El Capitan solo without a rope. It appeared impossible. It was certainly almost impossible to watch, and such was the drama imparted by Jimmy's amazing camera work. Uh, In the film, Alex came across as an unfeeling automaton, completely driven, devoid of fear or emotion, It was strongly hinted in the film that he was maybe on the spectrum and he found human interactions, even with his girlfriend, a little bit awkward. But I think this conversation with Alex will convince you nothing is further from the truth. I don't think Alex is normal, far from it. He's simply extraordinary. He is unquestionably a superb athlete. He's got laser focus and he's driven to the point of obsession. But he's far from an automaton. He feels fear, he's passionate and he's emotional. And he's generous with the detail of his world, and and I think he realises how gifted he is. But does he have a neural superpower? I think his power comes from good old-fashioned hard work, practice, and experience with a generous serve of fantastic judgement. In Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry, Inspector Callahan says, A man's got to know his limitations. I reckon Alex knows exactly where his limitations lie, and that's his strength. So enjoy this conversation with Alex Honnold. Hey, Alex, uh, welcome and thanks for being on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Did you get out climbing today? I, I did. I did. Uh, it's evening here and, and uh, I had a long day at the cliff, actually. Uh, well, I really appreciate you making uh, time to chat to me. You're, um, you're someone who, uh, as I just mentioned offline, that I, I talked about briefly in the first episode of this podcast and some someone that I've been absolutely dying to chat to. And you can you can thank your friend Jimmy Chin for setting up this chat. Uh, he's entirely to blame for, for dobbing you in. And uh, so this <laughs> is your chance to get back at him. And actually, fair enough, I'm going to be staying in his house tomorrow. I think he's out of town, but uh, just by chance, I happen to be going to Jackson Hole tomorrow. So uh, I'll be staying at Jimmy's house. So I feel like it's all sort of the circle of uh, mutual favors, you know. And also, congratulations on your marriage last month. I have to get that out of the way because uh, it's a it's a big time in a man's life. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. We'll, we'll see, uh, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a journey. Let's go back to the start for you, and obviously, I've I've tried to read up what I can about your life, Alex. And I understand you're born in in California, in, in Sacramento, and climbing was a very early part of your life. Do you want to just tell us how it started? 
Yeah, so uh, I started climbing in the gym at a climbing gym. Though I always loved climbing, I always loved climbing on on trees and buildings and just whatever was available. I just enjoyed the the movement of climbing. But uh, just by good luck, a climbing gym opened in my hometown when I was maybe ten, and so then my parents took me in and I started you know rock climbing in a more structured way. What were you like as a kid? Were you a sporty boy or studious, or how would you describe yourself? I don't honestly, I don't know. Um, I was definitely fit. I mean, I was a fit child, but I wasn't really sporty because I didn't I didn't play any sports. I never did any team sports. I never did, you know, any real, you know, I have no background in any other kind of athletics. But I think part of that is because I found climbing at the age of 10 or 11. And so then uh, I just channeled all my energy into that for, you know, well, basically until until present. <laughs> did you ever try gymnastics or uh, parkour or anything else? Uh, yeah, I, I took gymnastics. I, I took recreational gymnastics as a kid for maybe six months, just like through a local community thing by the house. Uh, but, you know, wasn't serious about it. And then uh, and then actually, I, I went to university for one year before dropping out. And, and there I got a little bit interested in parkour. I'd go to the park and just play around by myself. So I was like, oh, parkour seems so cool. But uh, but again, never, never seriously. And, and I was climbing seriously the whole time. So that was the, the main focus. Just thinking about parkour, have you noticed on that ninja show on TV, which I presume you have over there, uh, that all the people who win that competition where they do the obstacle course are either climbers or, or parkour enthusiasts? I don't know. Have you watched that? Yeah, yeah. I've seen, well, so two of my my personal friends basically have have won American Ninja Warrior, uh, both right. you know elite climbers. Uh, it it does seem like the skills of climbing lend themselves to those obstacle courses. Yeah, well, I'm going to confess at this early point in the talk that I have none of these skills, and that's why uh, being being underwater and removing gravity for, from the equation is very uh, perfect for perfect for me. So I'm quite jealous. Well, you, you have a you have a different set of skills. Well, that's true. That is true. Each yeah. to their own. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so when did you start to sense that you were you know really good at climbing? Did did people tell you that you were a natural, or did you have to work at it? Uh, no, to be honest, uh, I. I never really was that good. I was just actually chatting with a friend about this. Uh, you know, I, like I'm, I'm not a gifted climber. Like, you know, I have a lot of friends who are gifted climbers who have, uh, who are just incredibly talented. You know, they have unusually strong fingers just by chance. Uh, I'm definitely not that way. But thankfully, the type of climbing that I've become well known for, you know, free soloing and sort of adventure climbing, like the big link ups in the mountains, like the big adventures that I've gone on, that type of climbing lends itself to to sort of a high volume like you don't have to be super strong for it you just have to climb all the time and feel comfortable doing it and and that's kind of what i've always loved most about climbing anyway is just going out all the time and, and climbing a lot so you know if i had any particular gift for climbing it's just the desire basically you know the the motivation to go out and do it all the time and do it enough to feel comfortable doing it in ways that other people might not but if you're not gifted what separates you from the rest of the pack is it your is it the free solo subspecialty if you like is that where you've made a niche yeah i mean that basically is it i mean i think to be fair even if i didn't free solo i'd probably still be a professional climber just because of a lot of the big adventurous roped climbs that i've done like some big traverses some big link ups um, some speed climbs things like that but uh but definitely it's the free soloing that's that's made me a well-known climber and you know, to free solo at a at a high level doesn't really require you to be the strongest physical rock climber. It just requires, you know, confidence in what you can do. You know, I mean, like basically the physical limits of free soloing are far below the actual physical limits of the sport right now. 
you know, understandably, because, uh, you know, if you make a mistake, you'll, you'll die. And so what are the really physically difficult types of climbs, ones where you have to just hang on your arms for periods of time and pull yourself up by your arms only, that sort of thing? Yeah, that sort of thing. I mean, actually, it's, I don't know the Australian grades well enough or, or Kiwi grades either. They're, they're slightly different. But in American grades, uh, you know, rock climbing, like the climbs are subdivided into difficulties. And the, the hardest things that have been free solid are, are many, many grades below the, the hardest things that have been rock climbed with a rope. You know, basically free soloing is always within your comfort zone to some extent. Well, that, that makes it a bit easier to understand. Yeah. So how, how would you go on those higher grades? Are you able to do them, uh, on rope? Uh, I mean, you know, some, but no, I'm, I'm nowhere close to the, uh, limit of human potential right now. You know, I mean, the, the hardest grades in the world are things that I, I can't even touch. Like, I can't do the moves on them. I can't physically climb that hard. But that's the thing is that to go adventuring in the mountains and, and do big free solos, you don't really have to. You know, it's it's kind of like asking, a, you know, a, an ultra marathon runner if they can sprint, you know, 100 meters in under 10 seconds. It's like, no, physiologically, it's a completely different thing. They just can't perform in that way. Yeah. Well, that's great. That really helps me understand, uh, you know, your niche in this yeah, it, in this quite complex sport. No, it is. I mean, that's kind of the thing is that climbing is an incredibly broad sport, ranging from mountain climbing, you know, people just hiking up Mount Everest, all the way to competition bouldering. Like, I don't know if you know, but climbing was supposed to premiere in the Olympics this summer. Uh, yeah. I was I was supposed to be commentating actually, um, and so presumably it'll, it's all going to happen next summer. But you know, we'll kind of see how how the global situation changes in the next year. And will will that climbing be in in a, on a man made wall, a man made wall like a gym wall? Yeah, exactly. So it's an artificial structure, and it's uh, different categories, like different styles of of climbing. But the the main like the interesting thing about it is that the competitors, the climbers who have all qualified for the Olympics, are in a really similar category to elite gymnasts. You know, they're all between sixteen and twenty five. They're incredibly fit. They train in the gym nonstop. It's a, a completely different category of person than, than people climbing Mount Everest, let's say, or people going ice climbing or people going on expeditions to the remote mountains of the world. You know, it's like these are basically elite gymnasts. Well, speaking more about your niche then in free soloing, what what is the attraction of that to you? What does it mean to you to do that? Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's evolved a little bit over time, I think. Uh, I mean, so, so there are a few sort of obvious superficial attractions. The fact that you can climb faster, you don't need a partner, uh, you don't have as much weight on you, you don't have all the equipment hanging off you, which sounds silly, but it does kind of matter if you're climbing a couple thousand feet. I mean, it is tremendously less tiring if you don't have to carry all the stuff up with you. Um, so, you know, th- those aspects do make it physically more enjoyable. Like, it's just more fun to go free soloing sometimes. And then... At the sort of deeper level, um, you know, there's the the aspect of mastery to it, you know, sort of testing yourself in a way that's this challenging and, and meaningful, you know, it makes the experience more rewarding, um, you know, and then like, and then to be honest, I mean, it's also just cool, you know, like I, I grew up as a kid in the gym hearing about, uh, you know, other free solists and, and other climbers who had, had soloed, you know, important routes in Yosemite. And I just always thought it was cool, you know, it's, it's hard to know what's going to inspire you or like what's going to, you know, I'm kind of like, well, why do you go cave diving? To me, that sounds like the worst thing in the whole world. But, you know, for whatever reasons, some people just get inspired by things. It's refreshing to hear you say that one of the reasons you do it is because it's a cool thing to do. And and 
I don't think anyone would disagree with you that watching someone like yourself do your thing is just extraordinary to watch. And the fact that there's no rope there just adds so much more to the entertainment value of it for the observers. <laughs> uh, and uh, I guess, I, I guess, from your perspective, there's, there's something similar going on there. When did you start thinking you could actually make a career out of climbing, or, or did that just happen by luck? That that was sheer good luck. Um, I I was going to university, didn't really. I was studying engineering, didn't really love it. Uh, qualified for the Youth World Cup that year, and decided to take a take take a semester off uh, to like go to Europe and do the Youth World Cup, and you know go climbing a little bit, and then basically just like never went back to university. And started climbing more, but like I was saying, I wasn't gifted, you know, I wasn't the best climber in the world or anything. Um, for example, I, I think I got like 40th at the Youth World Cup. Like European climbers were climbing at a much more elite level, especially then. This is, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. You know, I, I, it's not like I was the best in the world, but I just loved climbing and just felt like I wanted to to go climb as much as I could. And, and certainly when I left university, I was thinking about uh, potentially becoming a guide, potentially you know, working in the industry in some way. And then, uh, you know, but thankfully I had some money saved up. So I was able to just sort of climb full time for a couple of years. And during that time I picked up, uh, basically some people started giving me free gear. And then I did a couple of things that, you know, hadn't been done before that sort of garnered some news. Uh, and then, you know, eventually that became being a professional climber. And is that based around sponsorship primarily? Yeah, it's it definitely was for the last 10, 15 years. And now post uh, the film Free Solo coming out, now sponsorship is still a very important part of my my living. But now I also, uh, you know, do more corporate speaking and things like that and events and just like other, you know, basically I've like broadened out of the climbing sponsorship world a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can kind of relate to how these opportunities uh, exponentially explode after something significant yeah. happens in your life uh, <laughs> yeah i'm sure <laughs> for you it was a more gradual progression through the ranks for me it sort of happened literally overnight Wait, was it crazy for you oh it, it was and it remains crazy and um i can you know it was a very different experience for me you know one one day i was a, a doctor 99 percent of my life and a, a cave diver every possible spare moment of my life but you know apart from getting some good deals on equipment here and there because we were doing some interesting stuff. Um, you know, we were we were unknowns except for within the, the cave diving community. And then suddenly cave diving is on the telly uh, for obvious reasons and people <laughs> want to hear from us. And that has um, brought incredible opportunities like like filmmaking and and uh, corporate speaking and uh, a book that we wrote to get, uh, with Craig and myself. So, yeah, it's it's been just wait until any of the film projects come out because, I mean, that's when it really gets crazy, I think. Well, that's right, yeah. So there's lots of stuff going on out there and um, hopefully we'll be – well, we are part of some of it. So, yeah, that is that is exciting. And and this podcast has, has come about through that. I just wanted to use my connections to talk to interesting people and um, <laughs> people people like Jimmy are helping me make that happen. So that, that's been really great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. But it is uh, – I'm completely going off the script here, but that's all right. We're having a great chat. Yeah, it's, totally. it, it is great to be part of a uh, a niche community, and I guess that the climbing community will be a lot bigger than the caving and cave diving community. But at the kind of top end of of that sport, you're in a, a small international group of people, I imagine, who know yeah. each other well and who respect and like each other by and large. Although there's probably a bit of 
rivalry there as well. But in the free soloing niche, which is smaller again, is there a, is there an interesting little group of people that you talk to? So the free soloing community is is unsurprisingly small. It's a uh, you know pretty tight. It's a uh, a little sad for me. Like basically, soloing used to be a lot cooler. I think, uh, particularly when I started climbing and, and sort of back in the day. And part of that is just the evolution of climbing in general. You know, for anyone interested in climbing history, like climbing came from alpinism. You know, like rock climbing came from climbing mountains. And so, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, and into the 80s, there's an element of of adventure sort of baked into climbing. Like you're always unsure of what the outcome will be. You're always uh, evaluating safety, you know, sort of concern for your own life. But then there's the growth of gym climbing that's happened, you know, from the 90s until present, and which has exploded exponentially. And so now you can be an elite climber without ever even having climbed outside. You know, you've never had to make life or death decisions, you've never had to, to, to even think about climbing in those terms. And so I think that free soloing used to be sort of built into the climbing experience because if you're out in the mountains all the time there are just always times where you scramble over some little rock to look around the corner like to figure out where you're going like basically you always you know free solo to some extent like basically scramble around on things but uh you know if you're growing up in the climbing gym you know you never have to free solo in fact you're not allowed to solo because voids their insurance or whatever <laughs> you know it's like obviously you can't climb unroped in a gym because it's unsafe and so it's less of a part of climbing now being inside in a gym is obviously less pure uh, for a mountaineer, and um, I'm sure it's a good training place for many climbers. But it, it's it's losing the whole adventure side of the the sport, which yeah, exactly attra- and, attracts a lot of people. And I don't want to be, you know, I'm not an old curmudgeon about it. Like I love gym climbing, I love climbing inside, uh, you know. But there definitely has been a transition from from climbing being this big adventure to climbing being more of an athletic pursuit. Uh, just you know a physical activity that people do in cities yeah which is fine but it you know it i don't know i don't want to say it makes me a little lonely but you know it does make the the type of climbing that i like to do seem more and more fringe you know which for better or for worse well i was amazed to read that one of your sponsors about six years actually stopped supporting any free solo athletes um saying that you know the sport carried too much risk for the company is that correct uh, yeah that's correct um, yeah, Cliff Bar dropped, uh, I think, five or six of us who all partook in, in sort of dangerous activities, not just free soloing, but also uh, base jumping and, and uh, you know, slacklining, which is totally – maybe they said highlining, which means slacklining up high. Yes. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it was their prerogative to, to, to do what they think is best. And they were actually super cool about it with me. They paid on my contract. They kept giving me free products. So I was like, oh, this is like the best kind of sponsorship, you know, where you don't have to do anything, but they still pay you and they still give you free product. I mean, I can understand at an intellectual level why they would say, well, that's not the image of our company we want to portray. But at the same time, it seems like such a hugely missed opportunity for them. I mean, imagine if Red Bull suddenly said, oh, we don't want to, you know, support anything that might be a bit dangerous. That's That's kind of their whole thing gone. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think Cliff Bar sort of just made a strategic decision to move more into the the sort of cycling mainstream, you know, being sold in supermarkets and a little bit less of the the fringe, which, you know, that's that's fine. And and a lot of my friends are still sponsored by him uh, as as climbers, but uh, you know, they just make sure to keep it safe. 
No, I mean, actually, I laugh because that's the irony of it. So, like, one of my one of my best climbing friends, Tommy Caldwell, is a professional climber in the U.S., and he's still sponsored by Cliff Bar, and so you know, I eat a lot of his 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 free bars, and uh, <laughs> and but the thing is that Tommy and I do a lot of big adventures together, and we're we're literally doing the same things. You know, we're climbing together, and so it's you know, we're taking the same risks, even though I'm known as the free soloist, and people think of me as the dangerous one. You know, for most of the big adventures we do all the risk taking is split evenly, you know, like we're a team and we're just trying to do it as efficiently and safely as possible. But, you know, we're each, I mean, I've seen him do many things that horrify me that I'm like, I personally wouldn't do that. Like, you know, he chops steps across this icy couloir in his tennis shoes with, with a rock in one hand, just like using the rock as an ax basically to chop steps. And, you know, had he fallen, I mean, he would have slid, I don't know, like 1500 feet, I don't know, 500 meters to the bottom of the couloir. And uh, I was like, that is like instant death if he loses balance, you know, and he just was like, oh, yeah, no problem. It took him 20 minutes just to hack his way across his cooler. I was like, I, I don't know that. I mean, you know, since we're talking about risk, it's like it's all sort of a spectrum. It's a little bit silly to, to say, well, well, that guy's the free solo. So he's dangerous because it all just has to do with what kind of decisions you make in the mountains. Well, risk is all about your perception of the danger, isn't it? Which kind of is a good segue into the sort of obvious stuff I want to talk about with you is the perception that you don't seem to sense or feel danger or recognize danger um, from an outsider's perspective. And, you know, this is perhaps your perception of risk and danger is what allows you to do things that other people can't do because you've, you've described yourself that from an athletic or physical point of view, you're not as good as others, but yet you are without question one of or the great free soloists of our era. So that only leaves the mental game as to why you're better or can do this stuff. So what, what's your take on that? Well, so so just to start with defining terms, I mean, so I, th- I think of, you know, risk is sort of the likelihood of the dangerous thing happening, I suppose, or, you know, you know I like to define it as risk and consequence. Uh, you know, risk is the likelihood of, of whatever consequence occurring. And so but basically, you know, a lot of people conflate all those terms and they just say that's really risky. And a lot of the free soloing isn't risky because it's incredibly low likelihood of falling off. And so the consequences are obviously severe, like you're almost certainly going to die if you fall off. So it's very high consequence. But, you know, from seeing a video or seeing a picture, you can't really judge the risk because you don't know how likely it is that the climber is actually going to fall off. You know, if it's incredibly easy terrain, the likelihood of falling off is close to zero. And so you know, I, I personally think that I'm sort of better at evaluating risk and danger than than most other climbers, because I think about it all the freaking time. You know, it's like, and I think I'm a little bit more clear eyed about some of those things, like actually evaluating, like, is this dangerous? You know, whereas a lot of people just feel fear. So they assume it must be dangerous because they're feeling fear. But just because you have a physiological sensation doesn't mean that it's actually dangerous. It just means that you're experiencing, you know, a bunch of things. You know, I mean, basically experiencing fear is like a whole suite of physical sensations in your body. And just because you're feeling those doesn't mean that, that what you're doing is inherently dangerous. You know, oftentimes it is and you, and oftentimes you should heed that warning. But many times it isn't. You know, it's often just totally in your head. Like you're not actually in danger. You're just afraid of something. Well, I guess if I climb up a steep cliff that I can climb... Uh, I'll be nervous, but I'll look at it and say, well, that's within my capabilities and I'll do it. And the consequence of falling is the same as you falling. You know, we both will die. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you are a climber, um, you know, so much 
different to what I am. So you'll look at a wall and go, that is within my capabilities and, and I, I accept the risk uh, because I think I'm unlikely to fall the same as I'll climb my little cliff and you'll climb your slightly bigger cliff. So I guess I understand <laughs> what you're saying, that you, you, know, you know what you can do and you know what you can't do. Yeah, and the key to knowing what you can do is is rooted in tons of preparation, practice, repetition, you know, just having done things like that many, many times. You know, and so I can look at certain types of, of cliffs or certain cracks, things like that, and just know that I've done something like that or harder many, many times, you know, oftentimes with a rope, sometimes without a rope. But, you know, I just know what it's going to feel like, and I know how comfortable I am doing that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a strong analogy with what I do in cave diving. You know, if I looked at the dives I do now compared to 20 years ago when I first started, I would be terrified to contemplate or watch a video even of, of what I do now. But now, <laughs> uh, as you say, you, you've done this over and over again. It's been a very incremental increase in experience and complexity. Uh, you don't try the hardest thing on the first day out. You build up to it very carefully and, and slowly. And if you take that approach to any of these these sports, you can do it with a, a, a great uh, margin of safety, I think. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And the other thing that happens is you have small incidents along the way that test you and stretch you. And if you're not the right uh, personality type for that sport, then you'll probably early on, you'll walk away, hopefully, um, if you don't have a, a major or dangerous incident, which occasionally happens to anyone. But by those small experiences of, of fright and fear, and uh, then you you learn to control your fear and your emotions, and you go, well, next time I, I that happens, I go, well, I've been here before. I I know I just have to take a few deep breaths, and I can I'm in a place that I can I can fix this problem. Do you think that's also? That's exactly how I would describe it. Uh, I think all those little scary situations that you're describing, I mean, those are what broaden your comfort zone until your comfort zone eventually includes things that you couldn't have imagined at first. I always say to people that at the end of the day, all divers will panic at the moment they're about to breathe water. And I imagine for a climber and perhaps even yourself without putting words in your mouth, there, there would be a point where you would lose uh, control and panic if you knew with some certainty that you were about to fall or have a, a you know, a fatal incident would, do you think that's true or do you think you can control your emotion right till the last moment? No, I think that's I think that's pretty fair. I think the thing with climbing, though, is that you probably don't know, uh, you know, probably the difference between climbing and, and cave diving is that with climbing, you probably think that you're still in control right up until the moment that you slip and then and then it's already happened. You've fallen off and, and you're going to die. So, you know, it's probably easier to maintain the illusion of control longer when you're like, no, I've got this, I've got this. And then all of a sudden your foot slips and you're like, oh, I didn't have it. But at that point, you know, the ship has already sailed and, and you're done. Have you ever been paralyzed with fear on the wall? Yeah, yeah, maybe not paralyzed, but I've certainly hesitated for very long periods of time, for sure. Uh, you know, and, and I've backed off tons of things. I mean, I've also climbed up. Uh, so, so there's a difference between on-site soloing, which is doing something for the first time with no repetition, no knowledge of the route ahead of time. And then the things that are like my big climbs that are shown in films or in, uh, you know, on TV or any of that kind of stuff. Um, those are mostly things that I've practiced on before. Uh, you know, sort of like big ticket solos, like things that are meaningful to me, things that are historic, like things that are difficult. But, you know, I spent a lot of time just going out adventuring in the mountains and those kinds of things. It's not like you rehearse them at a time. You just go out and, and you know, it's within the degree of difficulty that, that you feel comfortable just going up and, and figuring out as you go. But the thing about that is that, you know, I've often got sucked off route by accident, let's say, you know, getting lost 
in in the vertical world, you know, we we're like, you know, I'm not supposed to be climbing a crack like this. Like, where'd the root go? You know, like, where am I? Uh, and then and then eventually backing down or trying to find the root, uh, you know, want, going down a couple hundred meters or something and, and trying to find where I was supposed to be. Now, you know, and then there have been plenty of climbs where you climb up and you just find conditions that that aren't, uh, you know, very inspiring. Like the rock is too sandy or loose or, uh, you know, or it like starts to rain. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of situations that can happen in the natural world that encourage you to call it a day and climb back down safely. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've given up on tons of things. And can you actually down climb most of these walls? Yeah, for the most part, I can down climb anything that I can up climb. Uh, you know, if you watch the film Free Solo, a couple of those routes, you know, I, pr- I probably still could down climb if I, if I absolutely had to. But at that point, the climbing is hard enough and insecure enough that, that uh, you know, I'd much rather not try to go down. Like, I'd rather just sit on a ledge and call for a rescue or something like that. But for the most part, I can I can pretty much down climb anything I go up. So do you always have someone at the bottom keeping an eye so you could wave and say you need help? Or No, no. But in Yosemite, uh, you know, the road isn't that far. If you ever really needed a rescue, you just scream. You know, like someone right. will. And, and I always have my cell phone in my pocket because I often listen to music and time myself and things like that. Uh, you know, you just turn on your cell service and call somebody. <laughs> ideally you call one of your good friends very discreetly and be like, so don't tell anyone, but please hike up to the summit and rappel down, bring two harnesses, ask no questions, just, you know, be here in a couple hours. And you can hang on for that long, obviously, or you hope you can. Yeah, well, hopefully. But also uh, there are plenty of little stances, you know, little ledges and nooks and like things the size of a seat that you could, you could post up on, you know, so if you're climbing a wall like El Cap, even though it looks totally sheer, there are big ledges. I mean, some of the size of cars, things like that. You know, people camp on the wall. I mean, most people spend three to five days on the wall. You know, the key would be going up or down until you get to one of these good little positions and then just sit there and, uh, you know, figure something out. I watched a TED talk uh, where, you, where you discussed one of your early successes, the regular northwest face of the half dome. Yep. And a climber, Peter Croft, said that this was the most impressive ropeless climb ever done at the time. And it became featured in, a, in another film, Alone on the Wall. Yeah, that's great. Um, but I understand you weren't happy with the climb. Do you want to just talk about what happened there? <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of things happened there. But basically, I just didn't climb that well. Uh, you know, I, I, I hadn't prepared very much because I didn't really know how to prepare for something that big. Uh, at the time, I had no experience with, with working on a wall of that scale. So I just climbed it once, did the bare minimum preparation, sort of roughly figured out what I was supposed to do, uh, took a rest day, and then went up and did it. And so I immediately got off route in a way, uh, you know, and then, which, which isn't necessarily that, that big of a challenge physically, you know, as it turns out where, where I went off route wasn't that hard to climb, but it's really hard psychologically because you start second guessing everything that you're doing, you know, wondering if, if you're doing it all wrong. And so that's like sort of a big psychological strain. And then, uh, the hard parts are all up at the top. And by the time I got up there, I was a little frazzled, a little, you know, just a little over. It's like two and a half hours into a hard, you know, it was by far the biggest and hardest thing I'd done to that point. And so, you know, it's just a little worked. And then I sort of stalled out at a certain point on this, this slab up the top. And, uh, you know, when you ask if I've ever been paralyzed with fear, uh, you know, that's, that's a good example. I mean, I, you know, obviously I wasn't paralyzed because I ultimately worked through the situation and, and did the climb. I hesitated for what felt like a very long time, you know, objectively it probably wasn't that long because you just can't, can't hang on there for that long. I mean, your muscles start to get, get fatigued. But, uh, you know, it sure feels like a long time when you're clinging to the side of a cliff. You're like, oh, God, it's all 
it, it all felt sort of dramatic at the time. But the the point being that when I got to the top, you know, I didn't feel like I'd had this incredible climbing experience. I felt like I'd sort of barely gotten away with something. And, uh, you know, that that definitely wasn't the experience that I was seeking. Is that when you started to think about something bigger that you could be proud of, if you like? Well, no. I mean, honestly, after free soloing Half Dome, uh, I actually didn't solo for a year, maybe more. I mean, and part of that was just sort of timing. I wound up on a bunch of expeditions uh, through sponsors and, and traveled to a bunch of different places in the world, did some, you know, first ascents, things like that, and just focused on other aspects of climbing. You know, after a couple of years, I... Well, actually, even even that next year, I sort of started fantasizing about El Cap and a couple other big hard solos, but didn't really take it seriously for many more years because it just felt way too out there. You know, it felt like too much. Hello, this is Giles English, the co-founder of Bremel Watch Company. We're proud to be supporting Dr. Harris with his show, an ambassador and a friend of the brand who symbolizes the core of Bremel with its tested beyond endurance motto. As an engineering company, we specialize in the manufacturing of beautifully made mechanical aviation watches that are built to be worn in the boardroom or at Mount Everest. With our strong military links, we work with adventurers all over the world. Now, to learn more, please go to bremel.com and read about the likes of NIMS who's just smashed the record for climbing the 14 highest peaks in under seven months and see the watches wearing. Well, thank you for listening and hope you enjoy the show. Just to go back to the fear side of things again, and the, the, in the film Free Solo, it's kind of unstated, but it's alluded to that um, you might be a bit on the spectrum or, or suffer from autism or Asperger's, and I gather your father might have had something similar, and I did, uh, I did check with you before we, before we talked to, to, to ask whether it was okay to sort of discuss about this stuff because as a, as a medical person, it's really fascinating some of the articles that have been written about um, autism spectrum disorder and fear. Well, well, well actually, so, so first off, um, I mean, I just want to clarify, and, and I was sort of starting to, to tell you this ahead of time, but then, uh, so so in the film Free Solo, my mom sort of randomly alludes to my dad potentially being on the spectrum in some way, but I don't really know if that's true. I mean, they had a, a semi-dysfunctional marriage. They sort of... You know, it's kind of like one of those weird things where my, my father's been dead for uh, f- uh, 16, 17 years. And, you know, to randomly throw out, I don't say allegations, but, but to say things about like that about somebody that's been dead for almost 20 years and that, you know, that they were in sort of an unhappy marriage for the, the decade before that. You're kind of like, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know how well-founded that is. And certainly my father's family, I'm, I'm pretty close to my aunts and uncles, uh, you know, so his brothers and sisters, and they would disagree with that characterization. So, you know, I don't really know. And, uh, you know, I was a child, so it's I didn't even know what, yeah. what the spectrum was at that point. So it's hard for me to say. But I definitely wouldn't say that that's an obvious, uh, that's certainly not obviously true. And then as for myself, I think it's probably even less true, but I don't really know. I mean... You know, it's it's hard to say because, like you said, it's a spectrum. But um, you know, I've had a few <laughs> a few ex girlfriends in the past say that that I must have had some kind of personality disorder or something. And uh, and I've actually taken a bunch of sort of free online tests and things to to see if if I did have a personality disorder. Uh, you know, because it is one of those things where you're like, is there something wrong with me? Like, am I? Uh, and and in general, uh, you know, I don't. I mean, basically, from from the <laughs> the simple tests I've taken online. Uh, it seems like I'm basically a normal, you know, normal person. 
uh, or I don't, you know, I don't know how you de- define that kind of thing, but I basically, I, I don't think I'm on the spectrum, but in a way I'm like, I don't know. I'm just like, what difference does it make? You know? No, of course. And, and I wouldn't say that means there's something wrong with you. It just means that, uh, you're, you're not like the rest of us. And maybe that's why you can climb El Cap without a rope. Yeah. Well, well that's kind of the thing. And, and I think this is why, uh, the, uh, the question of being on the spectrum and things like that come up a lot because people are sort of looking for an explanation for like, you know, how do you do this thing that seems really unusual? But I think that the simpler explanation is just, you know, 25 years of practice down a very particular path. You know, so I think the question really is, you know, why was I so drawn to this path? Like, why am I inspired by free soloing in a way that most people aren't? You know, but I think that any human that puts 25 years of effort into a very narrow field is going to get pretty good at that field. So I don't know. I, I think that to me, that's a more likely explanation than than anything on the spectrum or any kind of neurological issues or whatever. I'm I'm open to anything. You know, it's like who who's to say? I would call it a neurological superpower, uh, to be honest, and um and work it for all it's it's worth. But uh, it, you know, it is obviously it has attracted the interest of the neuroscience community. I've I've read some uh, articles. I think that was that were uh, brought about because during free solo that as a maybe a bit of a gag they they put you into uh you know an mri to look at the blood flow through your amygdala and it seemed to be pretty much absent and uh, for the for the listeners the amygdala is allegedly the center of of where fear is is produced and analyzed and then sent out to be dealt with um so in in the in the film uh, alex is in the mri and they're showing him graphic pictures of pleasant and unpleasant things and um, no, no blood flow was attracted to the fear center. D- did you happen to read the uh, the Nautilus magazine article? Uh, yes. Which, yeah. So that's kind of the long form version of of what they show in the film Free Solo. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my, my take from all that was just that, and, and I think that the Nautilus magazine piece sort of bears this out. Was just that, you know, I've sort of desensitized myself over fifteen years of repeated exposure to scary things to the point that looking at a you know, black and white picture of something that's supposed to be scary just doesn't really feel that scary if I'm in a physically safe situation. You know, like laying on a on a relatively comfortable little bed, you know, looking at pictures, it's just hard to feel afraid, you know, if you've spent 15 years being very afraid of other things. But the thing is that I, I know that I experience fear because, you know, I, I get scared all the time in situations where I'm like, oh, you know, I could actually die. I mean, to me, the takeaway wasn't that there's something different about my amygdala. It's just that, you know, with with enough exposure, you eventually desensitize yourself to certain things. Yeah, I mean, that's a completely believable take on things. I know that people who grew up, for example, children who grew up in um, high risk or threatening environments, uh, in war zones, in places of domestic abuse or psychological abuse, you know, their brains actually change structurally and and chemically uh, because of that it actually interferes with their learning and their growth and all sorts of things so why not assume that if you've been doing something that would frighten many people from a very young age then that could have uh, effects you know structural and, and other effects on your brain and as it turns out uh, effects that are working to your advantage you know it, it feels intuitively correct to me that that if you practice something a long time you basically eventually get better at it you know and so and actually, in the researcher, uh, I, f- I forget her name, the woman uh, who did the MRI with me. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm blanking on it. I, I apologize to her. Um, but, uh, you know, she-, she kind of said the same thing, that-, that most reasonable adults assume that by looking at photos, nothing's going to happen in their brain because they know that they're safe and-, and they, you know, they feel like it'd be silly for their fear response to be 
activated by by pictures like that. But she said that you know that that typically it does actually activate your amygdala. My point being that most people don't think that they should be experiencing fear from it, but it's just sort of triggering in the background. So it kind of makes sense that that if you've practiced that kind of thing for a long time, you actually just wouldn't experience it. And I think many of us, including myself, are putting our perceptions of what it would be like on that wall into your mindset. You know, I, I can't imagine what you're thinking on that wall because I can't imagine myself being up there. And likewise, you know, I've had the same from many people saying, I, there's no way I could go cave diving. I'm, I'm claustrophobic. That, that's the most terrifying thing I can imagine. And yet for me, it's what I love doing at every opportunity so yeah i I completely get i completely get what you're saying even though i can't possibly put myself in your situation and maybe you can't put yourself in mine no well actually i was going to say i actually think the easiest way to put ourselves into the other situation like so if if i imagine cave diving you know it makes me pretty uncomfortable i don't know how to scuba dive i don't i don't even know how to swim that well you know I, i never really learned and uh and I don't love small spaces, though I wouldn't say I'm claustrophobic, but, you know, I don't like being crammed into tiny little things. But if I imagine having to cave dive in a, you know, extreme scenario for whatever reason, you know, I imagine it much like free soloing where it's like, okay, well, sometimes you have to rise to the occasion and do this thing that you know is supposed to be safe. You know, like when I imagine breathing tanks of oxygen, I'm like, okay, well, other people do this and they survive and it's supposed to be safe and I'm just going to trust the process and sort of you know, see this through, you know, it's, I, I can imagine that, you know, you should be able to project yourself into the soloing mind space in the same way. Like, okay, well, this is something that I practice and that I'm comfortable on and, and, and just sort of, I, I don't know. I mean, when you're cave diving, don't you get into situations where you're like, okay, this is getting pretty serious, but you know, like, this is what I practice for. And now I'm just going to like, yeah. And to be honest, to a degree, I enjoy that feeling of um, of being somewhere tricky and difficult, knowing that I've got some problem solving to do. It's only when it gets beyond that that, you know, becomes <laughs> unpleasant. <laughs> exactly. When it gets too tricky and suddenly you're not having fun anymore. Yeah. 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 I mean, I use the analogy of uh, anesthesia or anesthesiology for you. Um, you know, it's 99% boredom and it's 1% terror and cave diving is a bit like that and you know doing complex anesthetics looking at you know it's not my life that's in at risk it's my patient's life that i'm looking after but i can tell you that that can be just as frightening um yeah yeah. it's enjoyable when it's complex and difficult but when something's happening that's outside your control or you're not sure why it's happening that's when it becomes frightening and um yeah i think you know we wouldn't do these things if there wasn't a risk and as i keep saying and that's the whole point of this podcast is to find out why people take risks and what what is the benefit to us of of taking risks because i think it's incredibly important to us as humans to uh to do things that are risky because we don't we don't grow and develop if we don't stretch ourselves totally with that yeah i mean that's exactly it you never you never grow if you don't if you don't push yourself well, I'm starting to think maybe I can see myself on that wall, Alex. But uh, <laughs> just just uh, practice a little bit ahead of time. Yeah. Again, at a different level. I mean, it looks beautiful. It, you know what you're doing, and this is partly due to the imagery of people like Jimmy. You know what you are doing looks outstanding, but equally, uh, people struggle to watch it, like the cameraman down the bottom with the telephoto lens in, yeah. in Free Solo. You know, he he could not watch you do that move. And partly that's because, you know, he obviously liked you and felt a bond with you and he didn't want, want to see the moment that you, you were going to fall off. 
that cameraman, Mikey Schaefer, has also uh, photo assisted Jimmy on some other shoots. And I remember him once holding lights for a certain climb. And uh, he just looked the other way the whole time, just holding the light, like sticking straight out behind him. And so he was like lighting the scene well, but he just like looked the other way and enjoyed the view the whole time. Because he was like, I just don't need to see this. You know, he's like, I I don't need to be privy to this whole experience. I think the other thing to say is that the fear of heights and the fear of being underground, underwater (laughs) are are primal fears. It is normal to have a level of anxiety about doing those activities. And it's only with... Uh, you know, familiarization and, and gradual incremental exposure that you can become comfortable in those places. So. I, I totally agree. I mean, and they're, and they're primal fears for good reason, because they're both situations yeah. in which you can die. And so, you know, it makes sense to have a healthy level of respect for them. You're listening to Real Risk, the adventure podcast with Richard Harris. Now, it also occurred to me when you were doing the TED Talk, I, I wondered how you find that kind of interaction because um, <laughs> autistic or not, uh, you, you sort of appear to shy away a little from, you know, overt human contact. Is public speaking something that has challenged you? Yeah, it definitely has challenged me. You know, the, in some ways, it's it's the better example of, of systematically broadening my comfort zone because that's something that I was genuinely bad at and genuinely didn't like, you know, I mean, I've never even enjoyed public speaking that much. Well, actually, no, I've, I've gotten as I felt more comfortable with it. Uh, I've started to enjoy it more, I suppose. But uh, in school, it was out of the question to stand in front of the class and talk to my peers. I mean, that was just that was that would be far too much. You know, so the idea of speaking to a public has always been really challenging for me. But, you know, just due to to being a professional climber and then winding up in the public eye a bit. I've just had to quite a bit. And then the movie tour for Free Solo was just like an insane schedule. You know, it was sort of like a a public speaking boot camp because I was doing so many public appearances all day, every day for months. And by the end of it, I was like, I can do anything, you know, like put me in front of any audience, any size, any type of people, and I'll feel pretty comfortable just chit chatting. I mean, it's just a good example of, of how you get desensitized to things over time. Yeah, man, we got to hang out because our stories are identical in that regard. Oh, yeah. You know, the, uh, if if my worst fear at school was for the teacher to point at me and ask me to read, dude, that's exactly exactly before. exactly. <laughs> yeah, so horrifying. Yeah, yeah, and I had a real phobia about it. And again, this uh, you know, I had to do some during my professional life and giving a few talks about diving to clubs and things over the years. But yeah, this um, the Thailand thing was again. It was like public speaking boot camp. It was just zero to a hundred, and uh, that was this is my new life. So and, and, again, I've I've tried to embrace it. Well, and so do you feel more comfortable doing it now? Oh, definitely more comfortable, but st- always still a little anxious, uh, always a little nervous before I do it. Uh, but then I usually do enjoy it once I'm up and running. Yeah, I mean that's that's the funny thing is that you know managing fear in in some regards doesn't always translate to. <laughs> To, you know, fear of speaking in public, fear, you know, basically other types of fear. Well, the definition of courage is um, is doing something that, you, that scares you. And that's an important message, uh, which, again, I've tried to give to young people as I've been talking around the place that, you know, if you think that going into the cave in Thailand was courageous, well, I think you're wrong because for me that was that's my comfortable place. You know, that's what I enjoy doing. Whereas speaking to the kids, yeah, yeah, yeah speaking, speaking to the kids, to the kids, kids is courageous. what, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's so funny. Yeah, what, what about sedating the kids, or, or what exactly? Sorry, I mean, uh, sorry, I don't know the exact intricacies of the, the story in the, the cave in Thailand, but I mean, you wound up putting the kids under, right, to transfer them or to to move them. I mean, that's got to be pretty hardcore. We're sort of like, oh, I hope 
oh, that was the frightening thing for me was putting these kids' lives at risk and the decision to do that when I thought that really it had no chance of succeeding. You didn't think it would succeed? No, not for a second. I really? There's, I mean, there's absolutely no precedent for, for doing that, to render someone unconscious and then put them underwater for three hours. The chance of them coming out the other end alive I thought was zero. Uh, really? But um, and, and so that's that was the frightening thing for me. I never was in fear for my own life or my own safety really in the cave. Yeah, that's no, I can totally see that. I mean, you know, I'm just thinking about being in a climbing, like an alpine environment around other people who are, uh, you know, beginners or something. And I'm like, oh, I feel totally comfortable being here, but I'm worried for them. You know, I'm like worried for the, the yeah. safety of others. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah, because obviously you dove in there. So you're like, oh, I know I can get back out just fine. <laughs> but yeah, well, that's right. And each day saying goodbye to the remaining kids, you know, leaving them there, not knowing whether we'd get back in to, to rescue the rest of them was pretty tough. As Wait, well. how, how long did it take? How many did you take out at a time? Uh, four each day for three days. Oh, dude. Each day we thought that the rain would come and we wouldn't get back in the cave the next day. So that is you know, so rugged to leave them. Anyway, stop interviewing me. Uh, no, no, I'm just like, I'm just, I don't know, you know, it's just such an interesting story. Like, that's I'll have so to come crazy. on your your podcast if you want any more. Yeah, though, the, uh, the podcast I've been working on is actually a climbing history, so I don't know if you'll fit right uh, in there. Yeah, uh, I can tell you my climbing history. When I was 16, I was snorkeling along a, the base of a cliff, spearing some fish, and it started to rain and get really rough. So me and my friend decided to climb out of the water up the cliff instead of swimming like a kilometer back around the coast. And I was half the way up halfway up the cliff and it was wet and it was muddy and, and bouldery and I put my hand on this boulder above me to pull myself up and it moved and there's this like car-sized rock above me that, that moved about an inch and I literally became paralysed with fear and um, I, I will never forget that feeling of terror and panic thinking if I move this whole boulder will fall on me and I'll, I'll fall to my death. Anyway, my mate was above me and he um, took his wetsuit off and lowered it down to me and I grabbed hold of that and pulled myself up over the boulder. Um, so I do Dude. have a bit of a fear. I do have a bit of a fear of heights, but after that, the the, the first time I got to say, rock climbing in a wetsuit is never never the best way to start. But it was impromptu. <laughs> that is crazy. So yeah, we've all kind of had these moments in life, but huh. you know, it's good. It's good for you if you survive. That's that's funny. Yeah, what, what, one of my uh, one of my good climbing friends is uh, really into fly fishing and gets into pretty extreme fly fishing, which always involves exactly what you're describing, like climbing up wet cliffs and wetsuit, you know, with a bunch of fish trying to like get back out of some crazy pools. And I'm just like, oh, what a what a bad scene. That's just yeah, not I'll tell him my story. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's so wild climbing up a wetsuit. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it was seemed like a better idea than swimming all that way back around on the rough coast. Yeah, totally. Now, I have to ask you, now that you're a married man, um, I, I, I sort of understand some things that may be ahead of you, and one of them will be that your your wife, formerly your girlfriend, who obviously will be worrying about your activities, but now has potentially a stronger say in, in what goes on in your life. What um, how's, how's that panning out, and, and, and does Sani worry to the point that it's kind of a problem for her? Uh, I I don't think she worries to the point that it's a problem. I, I think she actually has a really healthy relationship with uh, with the risk that I take in climbing. I think I think she has a lot of trust in in my decision making process and me trying to do things well. You know, I mean, tomorrow morning I'm getting up early to go solo this two thousand foot route where uh, we're traveling for the day to go to a wedding, and uh, you know, I wanted to like go climb this thing in the morning before before we have to travel, and so. You know, getting up early to go climb a mountain, and she's just like, "Oh, that's the that's like a normal normal Friday or whatever." You know, but yeah, 
I mean, I'm sure you're right. I mean, I, I, we're sort of hoping to have, have a family someday, have kids. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if some of the decision-making changes a little bit around, uh, you know, family. But I, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I've never felt like I'm making reckless decisions. And so it's hard to say. I mean, I, realistically, I kind of think that if my free soloing winds down, it'll probably be more because I just don't have the the personal fire for it. And I've already experienced that a little bit. I mean, El Cap was like this North Star for me. You know, it's like this this huge, I don't know, it's, you know, it's my white whale for like a decade. And and it really is the most inspiring wall in the world, especially for somebody like me growing up in California. It uh, It's really like the center of my climbing universe. You know, it's, I don't know, it's hard to replace a project like that. You know, it's like sometimes, you know, you achieve that big life dream and you're sort of like, I don't know, is there anything else that cool that I care about as much? It's like, you know, time will tell, but it's, I don't know, it'll be interesting to find out. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as we get older and, and our priorities change, we have children, we do have to make decisions about um, our own safety and our own risk management. Only you can only you can make those decisions. The, the, just thinking about it, actually, uh, today uh, I went sport climbing at a cliff, so that means climbing with a rope, uh, you know, with a partner. And uh, it's a really long walk up to the cliff, and I walked up there really fast. I'm, I was trying to – basically, I'm trying to beat one of my friend's times. So I, like, hustled to the cliff, and Sonny hiked up behind me and got there maybe like a half hour later. But by the time I'd gotten to the cliff, I'd done some work at the base of the crag, spent some time cooling down. And then uh, I sold the warm up, basically like the easiest route of the wall. I just went up and down it by myself, uh, you know, before anybody got there, just as a way to, to start my climbing day without having to wait for, for folks to get there. Sonny got up to the cliff and she was like, Alex, Alex. And, you know, I whistled and, and then she looked straight up and was like, whoa, I didn't expect you to be like, you know, like I was on my way down climbing back down the route at that point. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's basically just a normal day. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, she didn't say anything. She's not concerned about it. It's a warm up. She knows that, um, you know, I do that from time to time. And it's just, I don't know, it's just part of the part of the process, you know. Yeah. Now I've got one last question for you. And I read that your mother is the oldest person to climb El Cap at 66 years of uh, age. Is no, the, maybe the oldest woman. And tell me about that. Did you make her do it? No, no, I no. Actually, uh, <laughs> it's funny. My mom is incredibly motivated by, uh, you know, challenges. I mean, she, she, I think even more than me, probably she enjoys having a, a project to work on, you know, like a goal in front of her. Oh, I don't know the last I mean she started climbing maybe 10 years ago or maybe a few more now like very casually you know she climbs in the gym socially with some of her friends she goes outside a little bit but you know she's not a I was about to say a great climber but she's not even a good climber really by any means but she's uh <laughs> but she's enthusiastic about it you know she she enjoys it she enjoys getting out and that's and that's kind of the important thing but so uh every year her birthday is in September and so it coincides well with Yosemite climbing season and so I've taken her up a bunch of different routes in Yosemite for her birthday over the years, you know, as like sort of a fun outing. And uh, she just kind of got the idea that she wanted to go up El Cap. And so, you know, so I was like, all right, if you, if you learn how to basically uh, getting up El Cap requires different techniques than the normal climbing. Like a lot of it is ascending ropes and things, uh, which is just like the nature of, of the way people climb, climb El Cap. And so I was kind of like, oh, if you learn all the skills required, you know, I don't mind getting you up the wall. And so that's that's what happened. And did it take a few days? Uh, no, we did. I was uh, no, I'm not going to spend a couple of days on a cap with my mom. Uh, no, it took like <laughs> uh, took, I don't know, like 22 hours or something. It, it was a really long day. I'm sure she has all the stats, but it probably took us a couple hours to hike up to the route. And then the climb probably took, I don't know, 12 to 15 hours or something. And then which is pretty good, actually. And then the actually the hike down is what really did her in. 
the hike off the top of El Cap took her like another six or seven hours. It was crazy. It was like I watched, you know, the moon rise and set and was just like, oh, God, I'm still hiking through the night with my mom on top of El Cap. It was kind of brutal. It was at one point. It's funny because I'd spent that whole that was the same year. Uh, no, it was the next season after I'd free soloed El Cap. So I had just been spending all this time going up and down El Cap to work on the, the free solo. And at that point, I was in the habit of running down from the top of El Cap in an hour, uh, like easily, you know, sometimes like 45, 50 minutes, you know, to spend six or seven hours hiking down with my mom. I was like, you know, this feels like driving 10 miles an hour on the interstate, you know, like being on the highway <laughs> in like the slowest gear imaginable, just cruising. I was like, this is crazy, you know, but anyway, but it was cool, you know, and, and it was an incredible experience for her, you know. I think you might just have the coolest mum in the world, by the way. Um, no, you don't. I don't. I think uh, we can see where some of your energy comes from. Well, certainly the uh, the the sort of goal setting and, and motivation. Yeah, though it's funny because my mom doesn't have any athletic background e- either. You know, I mean, it's not like she was any kind of athlete uh, growing up. and But she's just, you know, excited to go on adventures and go climbing and, um, you know, has gotten pretty into it. Well, Alex, we better wrap it up. I don't want to uh, keep you all night. You've had a big day up in the mountains. But I, I, I have to say I've, I'm com- I've come away with a very different impression of Alex Honnold than what I thought I was going to gain. You seem actually incredibly normal to me, and maybe that, <laughs> that, reflect, maybe that reflects poorly on me. <laughs> no, no. It's, uh, it's, now, that I'm a, now that I'm a married man, you know, I'm just totally mundane. <laughs> a- your, your views on risk-taking and fear and all these things make perfect sense to me. And um, I think whatever your neurological superpower is, whatever people want to put a label on it, it's, um, it's extraordinary and uh, really uh, inspirational. And uh, I hope you keep doing the stuff you're doing for a good while and you stay safe. And um, I can't thank you enough for, for sharing your views on all this with myself and the listeners. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And if I, if I want to add one thing, I mean, if, if there's any neurological superpower, it really is just practice. You know, it's like if you're into something, just do it over and over and try to get better at it. And I, I think that's why I sound normal about all this because I'm like, I don't know, I just like going climbing. And, and if I'm going to do something, I want to do it well. And so I constantly try to do it a little bit better. And then, you know, after 25 years, you get pretty good at it, hopefully. Well, mate, that's a fantastic message and a, a message for life. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Just have a go. Yeah, yeah, and, and if you and if you're gonna do it, do it well, you know. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Yeah, cheers. That's it for this episode of Real Risk. If you're a risk taker or know someone who'd be good for the show, please send me an email on admin at speleopix.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Subscribe, give me a rating, but most importantly, join me for the next one. We'll see you again on Real Risk. <laughs> <laughs>